Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. excited. We're going to start a new uh, teaching series this morning uh, in the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. Uh, If you want to go ahead and get a head start, uh, that's where we're going to spend our time. But uh, I want to start with this. There is little that is more uncomfortable than learning to live in a foreign location. And by foreign, I don't, I don't necessarily mean a, a different country. Some of you maybe have experienced that. But the truth is, if you've just ever moved to a new city, which many of us uh, have done that even recently, um, if you have ever even just moved to a new part of the city, if you've ever moved into a different uh, home, if you've ever started a different job, if you have ever started at a new gym, it doesn't really matter. The, there is little that is more uncomfortable than having to learn to live in a foreign location. And when I was growing up, my dad was in the Air Force, which some of you know, but we moved from Northern California to South Dakota to Virginia, and then back to South Dakota. And then uh, I moved uh, to Chicago for college, and then did a short stint, made a bad decision, lived a short amount of time in Indiana, which is uh, how people end up in Indiana, is momentary lapse of judgment. And uh, so I did, did some time there, moved back to Chicago, and then ended up being in Chicago for 15 years, the longest I've ever actually lived in one place. But even inside of those first two or three years, I think I had between 10 and 12 different addresses. So moving has just been this constant throughout what feels like the vast majority of my life. And despite all of those moves, no location was a more challenging adjustment for our family than when we moved to North Carolina about, at this point, four or five years ago. Coming from a big city in the north to a small town in the south felt like literally moving to a different planet. And, uh, and I, don't, I don't know uh, if anyone else has had the opportunity to live in the South, but there's just some things that are very, very different. I'll give you a couple of examples. There are some social customs in the South that are different. Uh, for instance, just after we moved down to North Carolina, Pastor Tyler came down to visit us just before he moved down there. And one night, uh, he and I were sitting in my living room. It was about 9 p.m. Those of you that know me know I'm like three minutes from going to bed at 9 p.m. And all of a sudden, we hear like a knock on the front door. So there's this knock at my front door. I'm like a little weirded out by what's happening with that. So I go to the front door and it's this couple from our, ch- from our church. I just want to clarify because I didn't in the first. It was not Denise and Nolan. <laughs> She was not happy I did not clarify that in the first. So it was not them. So I go to the front door, and it's this couple from our church that were driving by and saw our porch light on, which in the south is apparently this giant illuminated welcome mat to just come to the door whenever you want. And so as a result, I did not turn my porch light on for two years straight after that. So social customs were different. Food was very different for two years. People kept trying to get me to try something called liver mush. Sounds delicious, mush. It doesn't matter. Mush, mush 
It still has liver in the title. It does not sound good. And then one thing that really confused me, maybe you've seen this before. I, I had never seen this until we moved to the south. But anytime you saw a, a car broken down on the side of the road because it ran out of gas or engine failure or whatever, there was always a towel or a t-shirt that people hung out of the window. That was my response. I had that face for two years every time I drove by that. I still have no idea if it was like, I don't know who you're surrendering to, why you have a white flag out of your car, but it's just like the car's like, I'm dead, I had a good life, this is how I end. So there was just all of these things that in all seriousness, in and of themselves, many of them were just very, very small things, but if you've ever been in that and experienced that, you know that they add up. And they contribute to the discomfort of trying to live in a foreign location. And so here's why I bring that up this morning. If the message of the Bible is true, the reason that so much of our lives lived in this world are so difficult is because we are all trying to learn to live in a foreign land. The Bible claims that because of sin... We are living in a world that is entirely different than what God intended us to experience. And as a result of that, we consistently feel this pull of our values and our convictions and our behaviors trying to align with this broken world rather than the God who made us. And so the Bible says that we're like exiles living in a foreign land. And so this is why we're going to spend what I think will be about the next 11 weeks studying the letter of 1 Peter. Now this morning, we're just going to look at Peter's greeting in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and I'll fill you in on a bunch of critical contextual things along the way. But for now, uh, if you have a Bible or an app that you're going to be reading on, go ahead and go to 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter, if you're not sure where it's at, it's just after James, just before 1 John in the New Testament. All the scripture will be on the screen as well, but we're going to call this first message, Learning to Live as Exiles. Learning to Live as Exiles. Now let me just read these two verses to you before we pull them apart. Peter starts like this, identifying himself. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter opens by introducing himself as the author of this encouraging and challenging letter. And if you're not familiar uh, with Peter, we're going to talk about him in just a few minutes, but he opens this letter with a typical, what would have been just normal Greco-Roman greeting for a letter, but then he fills it with all of this Christian content that we're going to unpack together. And so just for the sake of clarity, I want you to notice how he opens this greeting, identifying himself as the author. He identifies who his audience is, and then he closes this greeting with a simple but significant prayer. And so let's start back at verse 1 with this opening phrase and talk a bit about our author. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So again, Peter opens, hey, it's me, Peter. I'm excited to write to you. And, uh, and if you're not familiar with Peter, his, his story arc throughout Scripture is pretty amazing. When we first are introduced to Peter in the Gospels, he is what I would label as emotionally erratic. 
He is just all over the, the place. And he's a middle-class fisherman. And he's introduced to us in the Gospels by the name of Simon. But almost immediately, Jesus changes his name to the Greek name Petros, which means rock. Now, what's fascinating about this new name that Jesus gives to Peter is that Peter appears to be anything but a rock. Like, when you think about a rock, a rock's like a picture of stability, maybe immovable or steady. But especially early in Peter's story, he's far more like a kite in a hurricane than he is a rock. And one of the clearest examples of this comes to us from Matthew 16. Some of you may be familiar with when this happened. But, but remember, when, when Jesus came onto the scene in the first century, uh, the miracles that he was performing and the things that he was teaching immediately caused people to sit up and to take notice. There was something about the way that he was and there was something about the things that he was doing and the way that he was teaching that caused people to wonder if he could be some sort of second coming of the Old Testament prophets like Elijah or Jeremiah. You know, there was a 400-year period when the end of the Old Testament was finished being written and the New Testament Gospels, uh, the, the events started to occur. It's called the intertestamental period, a 400-year period where God was not speaking. And so there had been this marked difference in the lives of the people of God, in their ability to hear from God. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and they start to notice, this guy sounds a lot like the Old Testament prophets. And so there started to be this speculation about who he was. And so one day in Matthew 16, Jesus is sitting around with his disciples just like this. And he's asking people, he's asking them, who do people say that I am? And they start to run the list. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Just all these, these ranges of names. And then Jesus turns the question on them. And he looks them in the eyes. And he says, but you, who do you say that I am? And Peter has what might just be the great shining moment of his life. Because he looks back at Jesus and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And immediately Jesus affirms his answer and reinforces this new identity as Peter the rock. And then in the very next breath, Jesus goes on to explain to them what is going to happen to him that he's going to suffer and die for sin at the hand of the Romans, but that three days later he will rise again. And Peter loves Jesus so much that he just doesn't have ears to hear Jesus predict these things about himself. And so then we have this amazing interaction right after Peter's shining moment in verse 22. We read this, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. It's amazing. It's one of the great moments in the whole Bible. He rebukes Jesus saying, oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Like, just think about that for a second. This move from you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, to openly rebuking Jesus inside a matter of moments is anything but rock-like. Now, pastors have made Peter a punching bag for years. I'm no exception to that. He's an easy target. But you want to know what the most profound lesson that we learn from Peter's life is? God uses the unlikely to accomplish the unthinkable. And that's still true. God's always done that. Peter's new name symbolized his new role as an apostle. He was one of the inner three closest to Jesus. And despite this, my favorite thing about Peter 
is that despite his many, many failures that unfortunately for him are recorded in the Bible, he never quit. He never quit. He just continues to press into God's spirit. And because he pressed into God's spirit, he experienced the transforming power of God in his life. And he became the leader of the early church, particularly in Jerusalem. God literally used him to give birth to the early church. And so here's the thing. If God can use Peter, what's your excuse? Because Peter was a mess. We have this horrible, I've been having conversations about this a lot over the last couple of weeks, but we have this horrible habit because we read, the, read back into the Bible where we elevate the characters in Scripture and we make them heroes. We elevate Peter like he was superhuman and Paul like he was superhuman. Paul murdered Christians. Peter, at the first sign of trouble, rebukes Jesus And then at another point, grabs a sword and like lops a dude's ear off. And they're like, well, yeah, but then after Jesus left, he was like a rock. No, he wasn't. He started to preach heresy and Paul had to rebuke him. This is after he's an apostle. So make no mistake, there is one hero in scripture. It's Jesus. Everyone else is jacked up like you and me. So don't read scripture that way where you think, whew, I hope I can live up to the incredible example of David. Oh, yeah. I'd say raise your bar. (laughs) He had an affair and then murdered the girl's husband. Raise your bar, friends. The truth is, you know that most people in Scripture couldn't even be pastors in the church today? For real. Peter probably couldn't be a pastor in most churches today because he had an anger problem. People tend to not want their elders to be like past Jewish terrorists. So Paul, or yeah, Paul probably probably couldn't be an elder, a leader, a pastor in most churches today. So enough with the worship of these characters. We're meant to see ourselves in them and to only be enamored with Jesus. If God can use Peter, he can use us. God uses the unlikely to accomplish the unthinkable. So it does not matter what you have done up to this point. It does not matter where you have been. It does not matter if you feel like you fit some arbitrary mold in your mind. It doesn't matter if you feel good enough, if you feel gifted enough, or you feel great enough. God is looking for willingness, not worthiness. No one's worthy to be used of him. That's the great message of the gospel. That's the message of Peter's life. And this letter is a chief example of that. Peter, despite all those failures, Peter got to write Bible. And so I want you to notice that Peter moves from identifying himself as the author to identifying his audience, who he's writing to. Listen to this. He goes on and he says, To the chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. So there's a lot that's jammed in here. Peter says that he's writing to Christians that are scattered throughout Asia Minor, which today is modern-day Turkey. And as we're going to learn in these verses to come, these early followers of Jesus living throughout Asia Minor were experiencing uh, a season of deeply troubled times. 
and their trouble at the time, though emotionally they were feeling much of what we're feeling, what was causing it was different. They were experiencing intense persecution, primarily in the form of being ostracized from the, the, the dominant culture because they were following Jesus. But they were experiencing this very, very difficult time. Now, here's what I know. When, 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 when you walk through tough times, your trust in God is tested. So if you feel like, as you've walked through these last five months, you feel like, I've just, I've had these days where I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I trust God. Maybe, maybe you're sitting here in this moment and you're like, I'm here, but I don't know if I trust God. That's normal. When, when life is tough, it's, it's normal for our trust to be tested. And when your trust in God is tested, you start to ask questions. And the question that Peter seems to be answering for these people throughout this letter is this. How in the world do we maintain faith in such challenging and trying circumstances? I wonder if you've ever asked that question. Maybe as you've walked through the dumpster fire of 2020, you found yourself wondering, how on earth am I, am I supposed to get through all of this? I mean, my, my guess is I'm not the only one who's been asking hard questions this year. There have been almost innumerable moments to ask very big questions about God's plan, about his goodness, and about how on earth we get through all this with anything resembling health. And so I, I don't know what your moment or what your moments have been, but I know exactly what my big one was. We were just a few days into all this shelter-in-place stuff, and if you remember back, it was just everything was so confusing, everything was so stressful, life felt so strange, no one seemed to know exactly what was going on. I'm pleased to announce that after five months, no one knows what's going on still. <laughs> However, it was worse. And so <clears throat> that morning, I remember exactly where I was. I was standing in my kitchen, I was looking at my two boys as they finished breakfast, and, and, and our house started to shake as we were hit by an earthquake in the midst of a pandemic. I just want you to close your eyes and consider the reality of that sentence for a second. Hit by an earthquake in the midst of a pandemic. Separately, those two things are exceptionally taxing. Together, they are literally the origin story of The Walking Dead. <laughs> and so in the aftermath of all of that, I just kept thinking, really, God? For some reason, that's, like, that's how deep my, that's just the only thing I could find to verbalize toward God was like, really, God? An earthquake? We needed that today? But in all seriousness, it's, it's natural to ask these big questions of God and to ask these big questions of ourselves when life is hard. And so I want you to notice that, that Peter jumps right in to this question of how are we to maintain faith in a season that feels so hard? He dives into that by reminding them of their identity. Peter reminds them right at the outset who they are in relationship to God, in relationship to the world, and in relationship to God's historic people, Israel. And so Paul starts by reminding them who they are in relationship to God. They are chosen. Now, it's largely lost on us, but Peter's original readers would have immediately began to pick up on, as they read this, they would have immediately began to pick up on the ways in which Peter was tying their identity as New Testament followers of Jesus to the people of God in the Old Testament. See, over and over again, Israel is referred to as God's chosen people. 
In Deuteronomy 4 and 7 and Psalm 106 and Isaiah 43 and Isaiah 45, over and over again, Israel is referred to as the chosen people of God. And furthermore, Peter reminds them that they were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, this word foreknowledge implies more than God just having a general awareness of those who would follow him. It also implies that he had chosen them according to and consistent with his plan for them. Uh, There is a commentator with the very unfortunate last name of Boring, (laughs) which I just feel like you should have worked at a Chuck E. Cheese because choosing to have the last name Boring and then becoming a a commentator, writer for Bible, which is already like so painfully boring, is just the irony is not lost on me. So anyways, but he is a great commentator. So Professor Boring, it's not a joke, that's his real name. He writes, Professor's his first name. Like this guy, that's what his parents named him. That's not true. All right, let's go. (laughs) Here's what he says about this. He says, the essential point in that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God is this. The essential point is that Christians are in the church, so this is true of you and I, Not merely by their own decision, but by the initiative of the God who has called them. See, the very desire, inclination, and ability that we have to put one's faith in Jesus and to follow him, that's given to us by grace. God loves us so much that even though if we are left to ourselves, we want to be our own gods, and as a result, we experience the pain of that, God chooses in his grace to draw us to himself. And he doesn't do this due to our worthiness and due to our hard work. It wasn't like he was serving humanity and he was like, this group of people right here, they are going to take my team to the next level, okay? They are going to make us so, I mean, just, you've been in church for a while. You know, like churches are just all churches, no matter how, they're just filled with the most messed up people on the planet. So it's not like God was looking around going, this is how we, this is how we win a championship right here. This is who we need. It's not based on that. It's based purely on God's deep love for us. That he chooses in his grace and mercy to draw us to himself. And I was even texting with a friend this morning who calls our church home and was watching uh, the service online this morning and he asked me a question about like, like what we do with this reality that God has, has chosen us and, and how do I, what do I make sense with like has God chosen everyone? There's all these questions that go into big truths like this and so here's what I would, I would say to you. The Bible has within it, because I never want to, sh- this is such a big deal to me, that we never shy away from hard things in the Bible. One of my most consistent mantras after 15 years of teaching is, is if it's in the text, you have to do something with it. And so we don't just get to be like, we'll just pretend that verse is there but not that one. So here's what the Bible says to us. The Bible displays a tension. And that tension, on the one hand, says that, like here in 1 Peter, like in Romans 8 and 9, like in Ephesians chapter 1, that God chooses to draw people to himself. That's one side of the tension. The other side of the tension is that the Bible says that people choose to put their faith in Jesus and that God wants all people to come to faith in him. So, Both those things are in the Bible. And the Bible does not perfectly reconcile that tension, and that drives us bonkers. And because of that, what we end up doing with this tension is you have Christians that choose one or the other, and they let go of the other one. And they go, well, you know what? I'm just, I'm all, it's all God's choice. 
I don't know why he doesn't choose everybody, but he just chooses some people and that's where I'm at. And they let go of the other side. And some people let go of the God's sovereignty side and they're just like, no, it's, it's not that everybody just puts their faith in Jesus. They just wake up on a Tuesday and they're like, today's a good day to be a Christian, so I just love God today. And we let go of the tension. And that's, that's we lose like half the message of this issue in the Bible when we let go of one side or the other. And so as much as it is uncomfortable for us, we have to be a people who learn to live in the tension. Because both are there. And we have to let go of trying to answer questions that the Bible does not. I'm not saying don't ask big questions. I'm not saying don't think deeply and reflect on the reality of all of this. But if you're trying, like, old, primarily old men have been fighting about this for so long. So ladies, please you know why they're not? You know why women are not? Because they're like, this is a stupid argument. That's why. <laughs> Hold the tension. Be uncomfortable. Be okay saying, I don't know how that works. That's one of my favorite answers as a pastor. I don't know how that works. I'm not God. Neither are you. There's going to be some stuff we don't understand. And it's only pride that puts us in a position that says that that's not okay. That was like five extra minutes in this sermon that was not in the first one. <laughs> You're welcome. So when life is hard and you wonder, you wonder who you are in relationship to God, don't ever forget you are chosen by him. And second and equally important, Peter reminds them of their identity in relationship to this world that they were living in, the world that we're living in. He reminds them that they are exiles. Now, this is a term that's used in the first century to designate someone who did not hold citizenship in their place of residence. And so what that meant was you did not have access to all of the rights and all of the privileges of native citizens. You also weren't expected to hold all the local values or to practice all the local customs. So think about this idea of being an exile in terms of those of us who maybe moved to Utah from outside of the state. I know that's not all of us, but many of us were not born here and have not lived here for very long. Now, I understand that we're not exiles in the strict sense, but sometimes it is very easy to feel like a foreigner. Our city and our state has such a specific and distinct history and culture that if you're not from here, it is easy at times to feel like you're on the outside of much of it. And one of the first examples of that to me was the first year we lived here and there was Pioneer Day. I was just like, what is this? Like the whole city shuts down and I didn't know this till after the fact, but we do that to honor the Mormon pioneers who settled here. But if you're not a Latter-day Saint and you didn't grow up in Salt Lake City, it just feels like this strange day off and another excuse to blow stuff up with fireworks, which I'm not opposed to. I just wish someone would have explained that to me. <laughs> there are many ways living here in which it's easy to feel like a foreigner. And so to a far greater degree, this was the reality of Israel toward the latter half of their story in the Old Testament. They were living as exiles in Babylon. The difference, though, between the Jewish exiles of the Old Testament and these Christians that Peter was writing to was that the Jews were in exile because of their unfaithfulness to God. It was consequential. But the people that Peter's writing to, and much of the time, the difficulty that we experience is not due to unfaithfulness, it's due to faithfulness. See, here's the thing. Th this picture of being exiles, 
The picture of being aliens living in a foreign land, that is actually foundational to our identity as followers of Jesus. All true followers of Jesus live as exiles because we live according to a completely different way of life. We serve a completely different king than this world. And so there's an important lesson in this for you and I, and that lesson is this. Even the chosen live as exiles. Even the chosen live as exiles. And I want to emphasize this because I worry when we assume that all suffering is a sign of God's indifference toward us. Oftentimes when we suffer, our first thought is, what have I done? Why is God punishing me? Why is God displaying his anger toward me? But the truth is, suffering is not an indication of your standing with God. You know why life is hard? Because we live in a broken world. That's why it's hard. And it's even more challenging as a follower of Jesus because we are learning to live for a different king than our culture does. We serve a different king. And so Peter's goal through the vast majority of this letter is to loosen culture's grip on our lives. One of the saddest things and most confusing things to watch right now is to watch American Christians just in turmoil about like, we're losing a grip on this country. We're losing it. We don't have never had a grip. (laughs) We're not meant to have a grip. We're not even meant to be the dominating culture in this world. Jesus, when he stepped into human history, he did not come as a political or a military leader. That's what the Jewish people expected. He didn't come as that. He came as a homeless, traveling, teaching, healing peasant. And he was killed. But for some reason, we're just so bent on, we need to take back control of this country. No, you're meant to live as an exile in a foreign land. That's what we're called to. And somehow, as we do that, the kingdom of heaven continues to break into this world. And so Peter's goal is to just loosen culture's grip on us. And to that end, I want you to notice this simple but significant prayer that Peter prays for them and for us as he closes out verse 2. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Such a simple prayer. It's just a request for two things. But they are two things that sum up both the source and the outcome of our faith. Grace is the free, unmerited gift of God's love that is given to us. We talk about this a lot, but we will keep talking about it. Contrary to the teaching of religion, we do not work to earn God's love and God's favor. Instead, he just simply sets it on us as a free gift of grace. And peace is what that grace accomplishes. No longer are we at at odds with God. We're not at odds with his plan in this world. We're in alignment with it. We have peace with him. And because we have peace with him, we can have peace with one another and even peace in our own hearts. And I love that Peter prays that grace and peace would be multiplied. Because in a sense, what Peter's praying for is the ultimate gift that keeps on giving. See, typically when you give a gift, it's like a one-time thing, right? You give someone a gift, like that's it, it's over, they opened it, it's theirs, it's, it, that's the end of it. On Father's Day, I woke up, Tammy and my kids gave me a new pair of sneakers, my favorite shoes I've ever had, um, to my uh, own heartbreak and sadness when I woke up the day after Father's Day, 
there was not another pair of sneakers. It was a one-time thing. They were given to me, and the gift giving was over. Now, that's different. Compare that to, I gave Tammy a gift just a couple of months ago. It wasn't Mother's Day. It wasn't her birthday. Just being an awesome husband. <laughs> the way I am. And so I, I signed her up for the book of the month club. Some of you, may, maybe you do that. So every single month, she gets a new book. So unlike how my gift was given and then over, she gets a new gift over and over and over again. There's two points in this. Number one is, clearly I love my wife more than she loves me. That's evident in our gift giving. The second thing is actually far more important than that, and it's this. The grace and peace of God is not meant to be a gift that we are left with once and then we have to ration throughout our lives. Grace and peace are meant to be these ongoing experiences that God intends to multiply in our lives. And that's such a big deal. It's not this one-time thing where you walk an altar and you prayed some prayer or you got baptized and so at that moment God goes, okay, here's the grace and the peace and hang on to it for the rest of your life. We don't have to ration it. There are these ongoing experiences that he wants to multiply, which means his grace continues to set us more and more free. And his peace continues to fill our hearts and minds more and more, particularly when we walk through seasons like the one that we're all in. And so here's the very sobering big idea of this greeting, and really of 1 Peter in general. Following Jesus means living as an exile in a foreign land. Following Jesus means living as an exile in a foreign land. One of my great pet peeves is hearing people share the gospel, whether it's preachers or just individuals, in a way that says, uh, if you just put your faith in Jesus, all your problems go away. All your addictions will be gone and all your sadness will go away and you'll love everyone and people won't annoy you anymore. If that's the case, I am doing this so wrong. <laughs> But we say that to like bait people in and, and, and draw people in to this thing. And then people get in and they have the, like what is typically like a honeymoon period where for like a couple weeks, a couple months, maybe even a year, it's just like, this is so great. I feel so free. I can feel and experience the love of God. And then they hit a wall. And they're like, what the heck? No one ever told me about this wall. No one ever told me that this was going to be hard. Everyone said this was always going to be easy. This is always going to be great. And the problem is that's because they were lied to. So we get all of these eternal and immediate blessings when we put our faith in and choose to follow Jesus. And it's still super hard. And so 1 Peter is meant to be very encouraging. It's also meant to be very truthful and very sobering. So that when you and I suffer, we're not meant to, to make the assumption that we must be doing this all wrong. So in so many ways, this letter is an invitation to trust God. See, Peter's going to invite us to trust God for salvation, for favor, for strength, for identity, and for reward. And the challenge is, trust demands that we surrender control. And that we surrender control in ways that often seem scary to us and seem counterintuitive to us. Monday of last week, our family went jet skiing with Pastor Tyler and uh, it was an adventure. 
One of my responsibilities was to back the jet skis into the water, which is not my favorite thing. I don't like backing trailers in general. The reason for that is that everything about backing up a trailer is, is the opposite of when you're just backing up a car. And so when you're backing your car, your vehicle, whatever it is, into a parking spot and you need your back end to go to the left, you turn your wheel to the left. But when you're backing up a trailer and you need a trailer to go to the left, you turn to the right. It's the most backwards. It's like the first time someone told me that, I was like skeptical because it just seemed so upside down to me. It didn't make any sense. But even though it felt and seemed counterintuitive to me, it turns out it's absolutely correct. And so as we journey through this letter together, you're going to hear things that are very counterintuitive. You are certainly going to hear things that sound very countercultural. And so when that happens, you're going to be faced with a choice. Will you trust God and take him at his word, or will you continue to follow the way of this world? The truth is, that's, that's like the great challenge of following Jesus every day. Over and over again, we face this same simple crossroad over and over and over again. Am I going to trust God and take him at his word, or am I going to follow the way of the world? And when that decision is hard, here's my commitment to you. There is no command of God, no matter how big, no matter how confusing, no matter how countercultural or counterintuitive, there is no command of God that is ever meant for your harm. They are always for your flourishing. And when we choose trust, God meets us in that. Following Jesus means living as an exile in a foreign land. It's confusing. It's uncomfortable. But it's good. And so let's commit to trust God at every turn as we start this journey together. Let's learn to live as exiles. Let's learn to live for a different king. Will you pray with me? Father, this is hard for us. And because of the difficulty, we are desperate for your help. Father, these last five months, for some of us, these last five months might even be just tip of the iceberg. It's just been, maybe life has just been hard. But Lord, many of us, we just come into this space this morning and we are weary on every front, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. We just feel weary. And Lord, there's so much that when we, as we follow you and as we read your word, there's so many things that we hear that, that do just seem counterintuitive to us, that are different than the way that we think, different than the way the world tends to think and tell us we should think and feel and behave. And so, Lord, we, we want to, as we follow you, we, we want to do our best by your grace, with your help, to trust you. And if you say go left, we want to go left. If you say go right, we want to go right. We want to go whatever, regardless of what we see and we perceive as we head down these various paths that you will call us to. We want to trust you that you don't ever call us down any path that is not for your glory and our good. And so, Lord, we, we, we choose in this case not, not to follow 
the way that we feel, but to surrender to you and to trust you, believing what your word says, that you are good, that you are in control, and that you have a plan. And so we choose to trust you, even when, and especially when that's hard. Would you help us to do that? In Jesus' name, amen.